This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where my brother John and I answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Hey John, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm wondering if we can rename the the podcast uh, or rebrand it a little bit to make it, instead of you just saying a comedy podcast, if we could just say what it is, which is a comedy podcast about death. Uh, I don't know why we didn't just call it that to begin with not not dear hank and john just yeah death comedy.com no I, I like dear hank and john colon a comedy podcast about death i'm a big fan of uh title colon subtitle i just I, I think that it's a tried and true method but anyway i am doing well happy new year i hope that you're having a lovely new year in montana yeah we're back uh the dear hank and john was on hiatus and now we are off hiatus you're not very good at saying hiatus that's my review uh, i think you're pronouncing hiatus wrong <laughs> That's one of the most embarrassing things that uh, that you've ever said in your whole life, which is really saying something. Um, uh, it's been a good oh, uh, it's yeah. been a good 2016 so far. I've been sick for the entire time. At first, I thought I was just hungover, but it turns out I think I'm ill because now we're like five or six days into 2016, so I think I'm just sick. Yeah, a five or six day hangover is definitely something to be concerned about. Yeah, I think it would be unusual. I did uh, over overindulge on New Year's Eve, though. Um, it was a, we had a lovely time with friends, but, uh, we do this annual, uh, champagne taste test where, uh, we, we uh, have a blind champagne taste test. We taste like 20 different champagnes. Then we try to rank them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, uh, all Dom Perignon, the nicest champagne this year finished dead last. Uh, 
<laughs> Dead last. Let me guess. In first, yeah, was uh, was just Sprite mixed with vodka. <laughs> no, uh, that that's actually there's a name for that champagne. It's called Andre, and it finished second to last, <laughs> just behind Dom Perignon. <laughs> uh, the winner was Madame Liberté, an American sparkling wine. Uh, so there you go. Um, can I read you a short poem? Okay. Is it about getting drunk? No, it's about hope. Okay. Same thing. This is by Emily Dickinson. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Hope is the thing with feathers. It's just one of my all-time favorite poems, Hank. Emily Dickinson. That she just she knew how to she knew how to write a word. She knew which words to pick. <laughs> I think that's that's basically the whole the whole thing of poetry. That's uh, I've heard that uh, that thing about hope being a thing with feathers, um, which I assume is either a bird or a dinosaur. <laughs> I, I don't think that they knew that dinosaurs were feathered in Emily Dickinson's day, so I think it's probably a bird. But, you know, the author is dead. Uh, poems belong to their readers. You can read it how you wish. What I love about that poem, though, is that uh, it talks about the inexhaustibility of hope um, and how hope never asks anything from you and, and is sort of always mm -hmm. available. I mean, Emily Dickinson, at, at least in some of her poetry seems to believe in this idea of radical hope that's core to a lot of religious traditions, this idea that hope is available to everyone at all times, even even to the dead, um, which which is really interesting to me. So I, I, I just love this poem. It's one that I come back to over and over again. I uh, First, I want to say to all of our science people out there, yes, I know that birds are technically dinosaurs, and uh, I just had to say that so that you weren't going to yell at me on Twitter. Ugh. Second... I think that uh, I think that hope might be a velociraptor. <laughs> hope is available the... <laughs> to everyone, even the dead. <laughs> hope is the velociraptor with feathers. It doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well, but it's still good. It's still I, I like it. I don't think it's bad. Uh, we are a professional duo of people who answer questions, uh, and and so that that yes, uh, we get paid to do that on the internet. We get paid through our Patreon. We get paid literal hundreds of dollars a month, which goes entirely to the people who edit the <laughs> podcast and not to us. But we, I still can call myself a professional question ask answerer and also ask very marginally which is a wonderful thing i am basically this generation's dear abby nope and you are this generation's um you know that etiquette woman who told people like which fork to use well you know dear abby's sister was also an advice columnist and a very famous one named ann landers they were sisters dear abby and ann landers really? but they were they were they were estranged from each other as i recall um they had no relationship oh, so clearly um, their advice was as dubious as ours is. Anyway, you are not the dear Abby of the internet, nor... I cannot believe that Abby and Ann Landers are siblings. That blows my mind. Or were siblings. Well, they're still siblings. They're just no longer living siblings. Um... <laughs> can we... Can, can we just... And the Velociraptor is available to them. <laughs> can we please just move on to our first question? It's a good one. Okay. Ari asks, Dear John and Hank, if humanity stopped producing food altogether and started eating each other exclusively, how long would humanity last? <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, so, 
Very interestingly, I don't know if Ari knows this, but uh, this question was answered by Randall Monroe, who is also a professional question answer and uh, answerer. Yeah. And I will say a better one than us. Yes, much uh, so better. So you can go read that. You can read his answer to this question yeah. on his what if column on the internet. All you have to do is Google, I assume, what if humans only ate each other? <laughs> and then if that doesn't work, <laughs> add in XKCD. Um, but uh, uh, basically... Uh, I, I remember reading that column and it was it had to do with how you did it. Uh, yeah. So the if you wanted to humanity, the existence of humans to last as long as possible, what you have to do is kill off the vast majority of us right. and then freeze us. Right. And then over time, feed us to a small group, of, like a sustainably sized small group of humans. Sure. Uh, because as Randall calculates... Uh, there are around 500 trillion calories of human on Earth right now. Mm. So that's a lot. It's a lot to sustain sustain us. Yeah. Yeah, I I, uh, I did a little bit of research into this, Hank. I, I only got as far as seeing that the average uh, human has 81,500 calories uh, worth of edible food inside of it. Um, wow, that is a lot. It is, yeah. Well, uh, but on the other hand, you know, um, uh, I just, I'd rather keep it, I'd rather keep it moving, you know? I'd rather... <laughs> I, I, what, what do you mean? You, I don't know. You'd rather not eat a human, or you'd rather not be eaten, or you'd rather not have this uh, this this hypothetical that Ari has supposed be reality, which I think everyone can agree. No, with. no, no. When I said I'd, I'd rather keep it moving, I meant, like, on to the next question, because I'm getting disturbed. Oh, I see what you're saying. I'm getting disturbed. Oh, Okay. I understand. Anna asks, Dear Hank and John, if you lit a match on Saturn, would the entire atmosphere of the planet combust? I know that hydrogen is highly flammable and that the atmosphere of Saturn is mostly composed of hydrogen. Yes, it would. It would combust and it would be awesome. It would be amazing. It would be the gigantitest ball of fire in the history of the universe. I've got a couple of problems with how excited you are about this. First... Thank you for your question, Anna. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. You're welcome about. for the expert answer. Second, I can't believe you want to destroy Saturn. Well, I mean, I don't want to destroy Saturn. I just, uh, you know, nothing can be created or destroyed, Hank. I just want to turn it into an awesome ball of fire. <laughs> Okay. Uh, an actual answer to Anna's question, should I actually answer it, or do you just want to move on again? Do you just want to move on and not talk about any of the things that I'm interested in? No, it's in? fine. Actually, actually okay. answer. Uh, uh, we think of hydrogen as super flammable because we live on a planet that has lots of oxygen in the atmosphere. Hydrogen gas is actually fairly stable. It's molecular hydrogen, two hydrogens bonded to each other. And uh, it's fairly stable, which is why it, one of the reasons why it is the most common molecule in the universe. Uh, but in the presence of oxygen, it uh, can, it would like to violently exothermically react to form water, which is even an um, even more stable way for oxygen and hydrogen to be t to, to exist. Uh, so water is super, super stable and awesome. Um, and so both of those things would like, if given the opportunity, would prefer to be, I mean, I'm obviously personifying molecules here, uh, but they would be in a lower energy state if they were inside of water, uh, which is why on Earth, hydrogen is flammable, but there is not a bunch of oxygen on Saturn, so you could drop a match onto Saturn without destroying the planet, which is good news, because if we ever wanted to, like, send a probe there, yeah. uh, and the probe had uh, fire coming out of the back of it, yeah. uh, we wouldn't want to light the whole planet on fire. That would really interfere with our science. Wouldn't we, though? I mean, 
you would get some science out of it. You'd be like, okay, well, we've never been able to test yeah. what, would it, what it would be like if there was a giant ball of fire in space. So now we're gonna we're gonna look at one of those, right? Uh, but then, you know, you couldn't study any of that. Well, actually, come to think of it, I think there is a giant ball of fire in space called the sun. But the cool thing is that Saturn, and don't correct me if I'm wrong here, please, Saturn would become our second sun. And it would be like in, on Tatooine uh, in Star Wars where there's two suns. That would be awesome. Uh, interestingly, Jupiter uh, is is on its way I mean, it's not on its way, but like if it were considerably more massive than it is, it it would have been our second sun. Uh, it would have to be about 10 times bigger than it is, but that's not all that big. Uh, and we would have lived in a, in a uh, solar system with more than one sun if only uh, if only Jupiter were a little bit bigger. Hank, do you remember when I said, don't correct me if I'm wrong? I didn't correct you. I added information. I ignored what you said. And then <laughs> and then I talked about how uh, an interesting fact about our universe and our solar system. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm glad that we only have the one sun because uh, <laughs> Earth seems to be a fairly hospitable place despite all of the carbon that we're throwing into it. Yes. Yes, it is a wonderful place to be. I have another question for you, Hank. It's from Jackie. She writes, Dear John and Hank, why do people get in serious relationships and then quit talking to their friends? I have more married, engaged friends than I can count on both hands, and only one who still talks to me regularly. I don't know. I like to try and still hang out with my single friends, but I don't have kids. Yeah, well, I think that when you have kids, everything changes because, you know, your sort of life and schedule become focused around your kids and so it's much easier to socialize mm -hmm. with other people with kids than it is to socialize with single people who may have different schedules um but i have a theory about this which is that uh we have like made romantic love too much at the center of how we understand the universe uh as people and so when we get into a romantic relationship we act like it's, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars and the whole universe and the only thing that we need. And then it becomes very destructive. I suspect, Jackie, that if you just hang around, you'll find that your married and engaged friends begin socializing more over the course of their marriage. I know um, I know that's true for Sarah and me, but like I've I've been I was in romantic relationships where like I didn't socialize with anyone um, outside of the relationship. But that was mostly because like the relationship was like super, super intense and you know, it was my whole life, uh, which turns out I don't think to be that sustainable of a strategy. No. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. I, I will say that it, as a friend uh, to, to people that the people I have maintained friendships with are are often, uh, I should step back and say as a bad friend, the people I have maintained friends friendships with are often the people who help me maintain that relationship who are like, hey, do you want to come over for dinner? Hey, I'm going to go see this movie. Do you want to come? Hey, I'm moving this weekend. Uh, help me move. Like people who actively engage, like it's, you know, it's a thing that continues to like, it doesn't just happen on its own. Right. Like, yeah. I feel like it did when I was in school. It just happened on its own. Yeah. But now it's like, you know, if I want to maintain a friendship with someone, I have to be like, oh, I haven't seen that those people in a while. I should... Be like, hey, I'll make you guys dinner. Uh, do you want to come over? I'm making macaroni and cheese with Gruyere. Yeah, you've got to be um, a proactive 
in general, outside of school, like in adulthood, I found that you have to be a very proactive friend, which is hard to do. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's work. But it is. Yeah, it's kind of work, but it's it's worth it. Um, but yeah, yeah, I. Yeah. And I, I do suggest I, I have found that cheese is a very important part of it. Yeah. Uh, of so course. whenever I go to someone's house yeah. or whenever they come to my house, there's always cheese. And I know that some people are lactose intolerant. And if you have lactose intolerant friends, then I suggest you to find some alternate form of cheese that isn't cheese. Like, I don't know, Pringles. Oh, Nuts. Yeah. Cool Ranch Doritos. Ooh, uh, gross. No. <laughs> God, Something that's nice so disgusting. That I, I got to take a sip of uh, delicious Diet Cherry Coke Zero in order to uh, get the just the idea of Cool Ranch Doritos out of my head. There's so many chemicals in that. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to take a sip of just brain wash so that I can forget how you just said there's so many chemicals in that. <laughs> I love it when people say there's so many chemicals in that. As if there aren't chemicals in water. As if water itself is not a chemical. I think I think you're pro- I think you like he- hearing people say that just so that you can see me uh, cringe and want to to tear out tiny parts of my own brain. Oh gosh, I hope that doesn't actually happen. Um, we should move on to the next <laughs> question, Hank. Okay, I got one. This question comes from Avery, who asks, "Dear Hank and John, for my women in literature class, I'm reading Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Great book. At one point in the novel, the main character is talking about Hitler's mistress and her refusal to call Hitler a monster. The main character thinks about all of the nice, innocent, even endearing traits Hitler might have had, singing in the shower, having a loyal dog. And then he says, how easy it is to invent a humanity for anyone at all. What an available temptation. My question to this, do you think that thinking of people in a more complex way can negate their negative actions, or should we try to see all people more deeply despite any actions, no matter how negative those actions are? Uh, that's a good question and a big one. It's, it's a, a big lot question, of what John. The Handmaid's Tale is about. Um, so maybe just read the rest of the book. Uh, is my dubious <laughs> advice? <laughs> but no, in general, I don't. I don't. I would say that I don't think that people's lives get worse when, or, or that the world gets worse when we um, imagine people complexly. It may get worse when we project uh, a certain kind of humanity onto certain people, uh, which is what uh, Margaret Atwood's talking about there. But that's, that's us projecting our own expectations and our own experience into others uh, rather than trying to, uh, trying to see them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's often this temptation to 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 try and understand these un these ununderstandable actions. And so we, you know, we we find the easiest cognitive way to understand them. And that is not necessarily related in any way to the truth. Um but I do I am not comfortable ever when when we call other people monsters because that that is clearly objectively untrue other people are not monsters no matter how how despicable their actions they are people and if we forget that they are people then we we forget a, like this sad truth of humanity which is that humans do and have done terrible terrible things to each other right i think like it's uh we can't we can't separate humanity from that monstrousness um not and and not just because of hitler i mean there are there there are other examples i mean hitler is the most common contemporary example and certainly uh you know someone whose individual life was uh 
you know, unprecedentedly destructive to humanity. But um, but there are lots and lots of examples of of uh, what what uh, you know the Romans called uh, homo homini lupus. Yeah, uh, I probably said that wrong. But man, <laughs> man is a wolf to man. Yeah, and uh, you know we'd like to think of ourselves as somehow fundamentally separate from uh, other animals or other predators, but uh, too often we we aren't. Yes, yes. Um, I I I picked this question also because I've been thinking about this. In the sense of sort of sort of like a like a separate version of this, as I've been watching the 2016 presidential presidential election happen, um, and it is clear that strategists on both sides are far more concerned with uh, getting the the person they see as necessary into office than with telling the truth. And so there's just this great like this huge amount of simplification and vilification. Um, because like they see like if we can get this person in office that's what matters that we get a person who will make the decisions necessary to make the country better uh in, into that place but even like and and like i kind of agree with that because there are some truly terrifying candidates at the same time if we continue doing this if we continue escalating it the way we have then we end up in a country where everybody hates each other and that is not like it doesn't matter who's the leader of a country where no one can get along, uh, because like like fi- having a place where people sort of agree that the system works and that uh, and that like things are pretty much okay is the is the most important thing. Uh, and I'm kind of like I understand like this motivation, and, and especially like if you live and breathe it and never think about anything else, to to do everything within your power to get the person you think is necessary elected. Uh, but, but my impulse is to, is to tell the clearest truth and to say like, you know, like things are complicated and, and nobody is quite sure what the best thing for the economy is. And one, one side wants to try this and the other side wants to try this. And I I know which one I'd prefer, but I don't like, nobody knows for sure. But then you have a bunch of voters who are like, well, I guess you're right. I don't really know. So why should I vote? I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, Uh, but you got to get people to the polls. So you create this fear and that's what motivates people to vote, which is very frightening. Well, I don't think it's I don't think fear is always what's motivated people to vote and I don't think it's the only motivator. No. Yeah. I I completely agree with you that like the quality of of political discourse is is in many ways like more important than uh who the actual uh representatives are. Um like if we had high quality honest uh you know conversations about about policy in public discourse, we would probably be better off regardless of who was the president? I mean, you know, n- n- accepting outliers who, frankly, the outliers wouldn't even be candidates <laughs> if we had serious yeah. political discourse. Right. I mean, like uh, not not to single anyone out, but Donald Trump would not be a candidate for the president of the United States if we had, you know, high quality uh, discourse about actual uh, policy. You know, um, <laughs> we would we would dismiss him yeah. um, as you know, as as somebody who's built their career uh, and their um, their campaign around rhetoric rather than around um, you know policy and governance, um, I, and I, I I totally agree with you. I I do, however, think that we are not going to change. I don't see a way 
uh, out of this. But I, I think that America's been like this a bunch of times in the past. And in the long run, it hasn't mm-hmm. seemed to hurt us mm-hmm. that much. Like if you look at the American economy since like 1910, it's grown at pretty much the same rate, regardless of who was president, regardless of how you know deadlocked Congress was. The only thing that stopped growing really is wages and uh, and mm. I don't I, I don't see anybody fixing that. So I, I, I feel like the biggest problems we have are problems that that no president can fix. Um, and I don't see any improvement happening to our, our political discourse. I'm very pessimistic <laughs> about it. And as you know, Hank, I try to generally be optimistic, but yeah. this is not a uh, not a place of optimism for me. I also have had that problem, uh, and I, I I feel like I have that problem more in election years than other years, where I'm just like, I actually don't, I don't know that it's gonna. I I think it's I think everybody thinks it's gonna be okay. I I don't think that like there's going to be an apocalypse un- unless there's an apocalypse. Unless <laughs> unless there's yeah a, seriously a sol- <laughs> unless there's a solar flare. <laughs> but that has nothing to do with the political the political discourse. Um, I think it would it would radically Hank what a solar flare would radically change the political discourse. No one would be like. Oh, well, I think that she dyes her hair. Yeah. They would be like, somebody fix the internet. Yes, I would. I am cold. It's very cold in my house. <laughs> no, I wouldn't be worried about the heat. I mean, I can manage that. I can buy wood for a fire, but somebody get me back tumbler. <laughs> oh, we'd run out of wood real quick, John. Um, mm, I don't know. You haven't seen my backyard. Oh, I think you I'd be might good not for run out of wood, but, but yes. Anyway, so we all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but there are two things that you shouldn't compromise on. One is name brand Dr. Pepper. The off-brand stuff just doesn't hit the same. And another is, of course, your health. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines or their family group chat or the crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally, no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat basically any condition you're searching for. And the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. So go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash Dear Hank. I, uh, I got a question from Jenny. I feel like we should move on. Okay. It's just too depressing. Okay. too depressing, John. Uh, which, uh, Jenny was intrigued by the conversation in the first of December podcast about being able to get to Mars if the Earth was smaller. She says, I am rubbish at science and enjoy you oh, and enjoy you giving me small amounts of easy to digest science information. Please explain. Okay. I'm happy to do that. Thank you for your question. So if the Earth were smaller, um, it would be easier to get to Mars because it would be easier to escape Earth's atmosphere. It would take less energy ah. for the rocket. This is right, isn't it? Why? Why? You know that you know you're wrong. You're just messing with me. Okay, let me try again. If the Earth were smaller, 
it would have less there would be less gravitational force holding a rocket to the earth yes uh-huh and uh-huh. then yep that's the you one. would need less energy to get out of uh-huh. the atmosphere uh-huh oh uh, no don't just don't th- don't think about you the would atmosphere need less energy Negligible. to jump like okay so if the earth were smaller it would have less gravitational force which means it would be easier to jump like it would be easier to dunk a basketball the yes. way that like on the moon people can jump higher than they can on earth uh and yes. it would also be easier to uh jump much higher if you had a rocket boost um, than it is currently. So you could get to Mars using yeah. less fuel and you wouldn't have this big problem where the fuel is heavy. So you need more fuel to get the fuel uh, to, to Mars. So it would be simpler. So that's why. Yes? You basically answered the question exactly how I, I would have. So great job. All right. All, I yes. mean, it's all about jumping. You're just trying to jump. My science is so good, Hank. Talk to me. Talk to me. I want to ask you a question now. Okay. Um, now that I've told you how good my science is, um, what do you think AFC Wimbledon's uh, upfront starting strike partnership should be? Uh, I think that it would be super good if uh, if they had an upfront starting strikes partnership of uh, of. <laughs> of, of, of See, this is what this oh, the, is what hurts me. Uh, this is like what a, hurts like, me. Like a sponsor? Oh. Is this a, is a sponsorship question? All right. Uh, I've got a question from Rachel, Hank. It's a big one. <laughs> I want you to... Uh, are you seated? Yeah. I definitely podcast sitting down. I love to sit. If you had 24 hours to live, what would you do? Oh, gosh. Do you... Do you... Uh, do you uh, bowling. Wow. The whole time? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. I tell you what, I probably wouldn't sleep. That's for sure. I do love to sleep. I might sleep. Yeah, I love to sleep. I love. Um, yeah, I love a good nap. I probably would go to sleep at around twenty-three and a half hours, just so that I wouldn't have to like be, be there when it actually happened. I don't know. It might be a little hard to sleep if you knew you're gonna die in a half hour. You'd be like, uh, I'm a little, yeah. a little apprehensive about this. I'll tell you, I, I might spend a good hour of that writing out some last words. It's nice to know the the actual deadline so that you can be like, I'm not going to mess this up. I'm not going to get halfway through this sentence. I'm going to say this and I'm going to not talk. I mean, I would probably end up spending the whole 24 hours fretting about my last words. And then my actual last words would be like uh, uh, Pancho Villas, who said, uh, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) That's awful. It's oh, awful. It's terrible. No, you I mean, got to you got to be those prepared. Are are, I like those last words. No, they are pretty good actually. He he pulled it out at the last second. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the truth is if I had 24 hours to live, um I would probably spend a lot of that time really sad with my family. Yeah, um, no, definitely. I think I think the, the yeah, I I spend a good amount of it uh as as they say getting my affairs in order. So just making sure that like I'd I'd fixed up all of the last will and testament stuff and everybody knew what to do and and talking to talking to people about how to run VidCon and and uh maybe making a video. I'd probably make a video. Uh but then but then <laughs> I would not make a video. Oh, I would definitely make a video. I yeah. I mean, Catherine would be really mad at me about it, but I would be like, I just got to make a last video. And I wouldn't edit it. I'd I'd film it and I'd make you edit it. <laughs> That's terrible. I refuse. <laughs> well, I don't have time to edit a video. I'm about to die. <laughs>
I would never, I couldn't bring myself to edit it. I, I, I think the idea, I would, I would be furious with you if you spent part of your last 24 hours filming a video. I really would be. I mean, for me, like my professional life is super important to me, but if it came down to, you know, an actual amount of time that was remaining that was less than, you know, a month. I would focus entirely on on spending time with my family so that I could in the hopes that I could uh uh kind of like ease the coming burden I guess um but I don't know I mean the great thing is that uh this is not something that I yearn for I have to say like I don't uh what, what you don't yearn for immediate death No 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 I don't I don't <laughs> yearn for uh uh, much foreknowledge of my death like oh yeah no no not at all I, I'm one of those people who would be very happy to have it uh, uh, you know just to be tapped on the uh, back of the shoulder by death and then turn around and then mm -hmm. I assume that's how it happens um, that's 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 sort of the eternal question if you if you could find out when you were going to die would you would you yeah. find out um, yeah I feel like I'd be like if it's over 80 tell me but yeah. But then I know that it's sometime before eighty if they don't tell me. Right. Yeah. That's kind of terrible because then the whole time you're like, oh, I know. I'm, I'm yeah. I would. I see. Here is my. What is your over under? Like, if you were given a number right now that you could live to, uh, that you'd take it. The minimum number that you would be like, yes, I accept that. I will not take my chances with fate. I will not take my chances with fate. I will. I will take that number. Oh, that's a, that is a great question. <laughs> um, I, I probably like uh, eighty six. What? Are you kidding? Is that too? Is that too low? No, it is completely unreasonably high. No, it's not. It's on the outside of the bell curve. You're gonna. You, you would if if you weren't given eighty six. You're gonna take your chances. Well, I, 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 who's who's doing the. Who's doing the bet mastering? I was going to say like 73. No way. No way. That's on the inside of the bell curve. Yeah, I would take on the inside of the bell curve to have a guaranteed life that goes to 73. Nope, 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 nope. No, I would not. I, I, uh. Really? Well, yeah, I got, you got to play the odds, John. You got to say, I, on average, I'm going to live that long anyway. So I'm, I'm basically like, I'm, I'm not using this as an opportunity to guarantee that I don't die. I'm using this opportunity to, to potentially extend my lifespan. Oh yeah. So I am definitely using it as an opportunity to guarantee that I don't die tomorrow. <laughs> like just the, we, we definitely think about death differently, John. Just the quality of life addition that, that I would have if I could be guaranteed not to die tomorrow is, <laughs> is difficult to measure. I can't believe there's a 16-year uh, divergence between our over-unders on when we would uh, accept a given day, uh, day of death. Now I'm rethinking it. Now I'm thinking maybe, okay, I, my last, my this is my final offer to, to God. <laughs> uh, 78. If I was given 78 right now, I would take it, no questions asked, hands down. Because also that would mean, assuming that Sarah uh, lives to be 78 or 76, which she probably will because she has great genes. Um, both J-E-A-N-S and G-E-N-E-S. Um, I think uh, that would allow us to uh, celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary. Oh, yeah. No, great. that's a good idea. Just to be like, I want to guarantee that I get to 50th. That's probably, yeah, that's that's a smart smart thing to do. Yeah, I'd take 78. There's my offer. Okay. I don't think about the the possibility that I'm going to die tomorrow. Like, that mm. does not come up. What is that like? With me, in my brain. And it is very, it's interesting to, to hear that it comes up in your brain. 
it comes up in my brain a lot. I often get stuck into obsessive thought spirals, thinking that I am in my my uh, my my final uh, my final days of of life on Earth. Um, but I recognize that that is a result of my um, you know like brain brain disease. Uh, yeah, it does suck though. I remember calling you once. I don't know if you remember this. I remember calling you once. I think during in two thousand seven during Brotherhood two point and um, and I was in an airport and I said. Hank, do you ever like sit in the airport and think about the fact that all of these people are going to be dead and not in like a very long time either, but like they'll all be dead within a century? Mm -hmm. And you were like, not really. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I do think it's... Which good for you. Like what? It's not a productive thought. Like it's not a, it's not a thought that I'm grateful to have had or like it doesn't like uh, bring me into some wisdom that I, that I, that I wouldn't otherwise have access to. I'm just like, oh, that's too bad. He's going to die. They're going to die. She's going to die. They're going to die. Everybody listening to this podcast is going to die. I... I that doesn't, everybody listening to this podcast that doesn't bother me. Maybe there is one person listening to this podcast who will be alive in a hundred years. Maybe. Yeah. No. You know, I bet there's gonna there's more than one. Really? Yeah. I bet there's. I bet there's. Uh, I, I mean, so first we have to say that there's probably people who are under the age of ten watching the podcast, listening to the podcast, which I think is is the case. Yeah. And second, we have to say that that uh, in the future lifespans will be. You know, in a hundred years, a hundred years from now, lifespans will be a lot longer than they are now. So we have I'm to not uh, that. say that that there will not be a, a major technological uh, break, like some kind of apocalypse, or the uh, and that uh, you know we will continue to ex- extend the human lifespan. Um, and I I think that's a pretty good bet. Um, so yeah, so people under ten, uh, if you're alive in a hundred years, think about this moment. Think about this and think about me and John oh. and how we're super, super dead, but we had an effect on your life. So we mattered at least for as long as you're still alive. <laughs> you know, Hank, uh, ultimately, that's why I love football so much is that uh, football is a thing uh, that that survives. Um, it, it's a thing that crosses generations and survives. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. It survives the death of any individual. Um, and then when, uh, you know, the system itself tries to destroy football by moving uh, Wimbledon to Milton Keynes, football says no. No, there will be football in Wimbledon in the form of AFC Wimbledon, the greatest fourth-tier soccer club in the history of the world. Would you like to know the news from AFC Wimbledon, Hank? Well, first I want to say that it's really nice that football gets to continue uh, and and be this eternal thing, unlike yeah. the whole of human knowledge, which is which is uh, embodied right. in the spirit of exploration that uh, that we have uh, we have imbued in our souls from the moment of the uh, of the creation of our uh, the moment of the existence of our species. Yeah, and uh, you know, and that that is a very a much more limited thing than this uh, peculiar institution of round things going into. Uh, rectangles um, uh, on fields. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree with everything that you just said, especially the part where you said that uh, AFC Wimbledon was much more interesting than Mars exploration. Um, <laughs> so uh, you go. 
So, Hank, we have missed many AFC Wimbledon games as a result of our uh, hiatus. How do you say it again? Hiatus. Hiatus. <laughs> as a result <laughs> of our hiatus. Um, you know, things were looking a little dark for Wimbledon. You, you may recall we lost uh, to Dag and Red. Yeah, that uh, was bad. You never want to lose Dag and to Red. Dag and Red. That's always a bad sign. And, and there had been, I think, six games without a win. Um, and then we lost to Stevenage on December 12th. And it was really a darkness. And we had a two-two draw to Newport County, and well, that, people were like, oh "Newport my. County that isn't was fun actually, to say." What'd you say? I said Newport County isn't fun to say. We had Dag and Red, and we had Skevenage. Why aren't all the, yeah. the teams have great names? Wimbledon is also a pretty fun thing to say. Wimbledon. Yeah. Dag and Red. Dag and Red. Dag and Red. Lose to you. I'd rather be dead. Do they say that? Uh, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if they sing that song to Dag and Red. I'll inquire. Um, so <laughs> then things started to turn around on December nineteenth. Uh, we were um, losing to Newport County. We came back. We tied two two. Then we had a standard Wimbly Wombly nil nil draw against Bristol Rovers, and then. We've had two consecutive victories on Boxing Day. Woo! Oh, no. On December 28th, uh, oh. AFC Wimbledon beat Exeter City 2-0. And then uh, AFC Wimbledon beat Cambridge United 4-1, including a goal, Hank, from our Montserratian international friend, Lyle Taylor. Woo! I know. It was very exciting. This means that AFC Wimbledon are now 10th, 10th in League 2 uh, oh. I know, wow. I know, it's exciting. You, you, you can kind of, so Hank, I know that you're not a, uh, a big soccer fan, but it, if you are a soccer fan, you can kind of feel whether things are going well or poorly for your team based on whether you find yourself looking down the table or up the table. You know, are you looking down and being like, oh my God, we're only 12 points away from relegation? Or are you looking up and being like, huh, we are only like four or five points away from the playoffs? Right now, AFC Wimbledon are definitely looking up because they are more than 20 well, no, 19. They're 19 points clear of relegation, Hank, and they're only four points away from a playoff spot. All right. Well, all those teams that are above AFC Wimbledon in the, the table, yep. I wish you bad luck. Very bad luck. Very, very bad luck. I'm starting to feel, Hank, I'm starting to feel with the decision about the new stadium that's going to be built, I'm starting to dream about dreaming about dreaming. That's how close I am to dreaming. All right. It's a beautiful About it's a beautiful AFC dream. Wimbledon in, in League One. I, I feel as if your soul is filled with velociraptors, John. <laughs> it's being lifted by these beautiful flightless dinosaurs. Uh, in Mars News, amazingly and, and, and somewhat disturbingly, you, your luck turned around on the 19th. As did Mars's from a great year. Whoa! Uh, from a great well, it's around the nineteenth anyway. From a, a wonderful twenty fifteen, uh, we got our first, really our first, I think, really bad piece of Mars news that I will ever I have discussed uh -oh. yet on this podcast. Uh, the Mars Insight Lander, which is uh, uh, which was scheduled to uh, to blast off in March and land in on Mars in September and uh, and use a very sensitive seismometer to learn things about the interior of Mars and its geological history and it why it doesn't have plate tectonics and it clearly has active volcanoes but uh, but uh, how how 
active? Is it internally? What's going on in there? Um, was uh, they they were doing some tests, uh, some preliminary tests before the launch, and the this like this most important instrument on the Insight lander, the the super sensitive seismometer, uh, had a leak in it. It has to maintain a vacuum inside of it so that it for it to function correctly, and it had a leak, and uh, and that means that. Uh, they will not be able to hit this launch window. And as you know, John, Mars and Earth both go around the sun in basically a circle. And they go around at different rates. And so sometimes Mars is is like basically on the other side of the sun. So ve- like farther away than the sun, really far away. And sometimes it's real close. Sometimes they're like basically next door neighbors. It depends on the, the mm-hmm. orbital cycles. And, uh, and so the vast majority of the time, you cannot send things to Mars. It's just too far away. So the launch windows are very short, and they are few and far between, which means that InSight will not launch until 2018, which is very sad. Wow. That is a bummer. I'm sorry. Yeah. By the time it launches, AFC Wimbledon may be playing in their new stadium yeah. in League One. <laughs> wow. Uh, that, that's, a, that's, that's a lot of jumps, John. No, it's just one jump. We're currently in League Two. Oh, okay. uh, confusingly. Oh, I don't the, know. Ah, that is I the fourth don't, don't tier of English me to football. Know what leagues are. League One, <laughs> as you would guess from the fact that it's called League One, is the third tier of English football. Above that oh, is the Championship, which seems like it would be the Championship, but no, it's the second tier of English football. And above that <laughs> is the Premier League. They, I mean, could th- could they be any more pretentious in their naming of leagues? <laughs> uh, this this uh, this podcast is brought to you by the pretension of the English soccer league people who decide things. And of course, this podcast is also brought to you by vacuums, vacuums, uh, breaking and not letting things go to Mars since 2016. <laughs> this, this this podcast is brought to you by human cannibalism. <laughs> Ah, human cannibalism, the last resort uh, if there was no other food on the planet. But good thing there are 500 trillion calories of human flesh. God, that's just so disturbing. I can't. I I can't let it go. And of course, this... Uh, and of course, this podcast is brought to you by Gambling With Your Life. Gambling With Your Life, sadly... Sadly, you are not offered the opportunity to do it by picking a number at which you would accept death. <laughs> All right, John, what did we learn today? Oh, man, uh, we learned so much. Uh, we learned that uh, every human being apparently contains 81,500 uh, calories worth of food. We learned that John Green would like to drop a match onto Saturn and see it light up in a fiery fireball that destroys one of the most beautiful sights we have to see because he is a heartless, evil person. And of course, we learned that if Hank Green had one day to live, he would make a YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> Just for posterity. People would want it would get real good views. Oh man, but you wouldn't be there to enjoy the <laughs> immense wealth that comes from YouTube advertising. <laughs> Thank you for listening uh, to our podcast. Uh, you can send us questions at hankandjohn at gmail.com or use the hashtag dear Hank and John on Twitter. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John. Uh, this podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. Uh, the theme music is from Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to, to be, be awesome. awesome.